All right, before we start the show today, we got to talk about MSU Denver Online. MSU Denver Online puts a dynamic education at your fingertips without forcing you to decide between earning a degree and living your life. MSU Denver is the Colorado institution providing rigorous and affordable online programs taught by professors who bring the real world into the classroom. Uh, at this point in life, at this stage in life, everyone is trying to figure out how they can keep living their lives as they were, but do it from the safety, comfort, and convenience of their homes. You can do that with your education, and it does not have to be a lazy experience. It's not a shortcut to a degree. It's not a point A to point B experience. These teachers are active, engaged, responsive, and qualified. So you do not have to choose. Uh, put that dynamic education at your fingertips. Check out MSU Denver online. What is up, everybody, and welcome into the DNVR Nuggets Podcast Notebook Edition. I'm your host, Adam Mata. I'm going to be doing this one solo today. If you're new to the show, Notebook Editions usually come the day after a game. We do a live reaction show on YouTube that I really, really enjoy. It's also a podcast, obviously, but um, we do it live from our DNVR studios. Those are instant reactions. We talk about everything. It's kind of our first walkthrough. Lots of good stuff in those. I really enjoy them. I think a lot of people enjoy those as well. But these Notebook episodes go a little bit deeper. I rewatch the games. I really hone in on certain keys and I try to share my perspective on what um, you know some of the details of what's going on maybe a little bit more of the technical aspect of the game and there's a lot in this one I want to go more or less in order of my notes that's how I always do it but the key and I think the number one thing I'm going to be talking about in today's show is can Denver defend the pick and roll with Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell and specifically um, you know their key action that they're using out of the pick and roll this twist sort of action where they set two screens um, for Donovan Mitchell and have just had so much success basically feasting off of every option out of that whether that's Donovan Mitchell attacking the basket whether it's kickouts because the defense collapses over the top to Gobert the Utah Jazz very clearly knew exactly how they wanted to attack Denver and they have the weapons and tools to really get every option out of it. The NBA is such a tough game that I, I, I always laugh when people talk about the defense in the NBA or lament it like there's none of this. Defense in the NBA is so incredibly complex. It was funny. I was talking to George Carl the other day when he was in studio and we were and we were watching the game together and he laughed at the same thing. He said, people don't understand the NBA game. It takes a PhD. He's like the college game, even at its top levels, it's just so incredibly basic compared to what's going on in the NBA. And especially when you watch playoff basketball and the play, I'm going to be breaking down and all the other different pick and roll variations. Denver is trying so many different things. And Donovan Mitchell has been so great at reading that on the fly and attacking whatever, really picking his poison of what is there, or picking what Denver does. You want to block off this option, go into this option. Uh, and he has the tools to do it and the talent to do it. So um, some pretty discouraging stuff on that end but there's also some things Denver can do maybe maybe not stop that specific action maybe make it a little bit better win some of the margins but there's certainly a lot I think they can do on the offensive end to sort of try to keep pace with with this uh, Utah game so there's some interesting stuff to get to let's get into the mo notes number one note I'm not going chronological order number one note I have on here is that the Utah Jazz started the game with Morgan on Jokic and I gotta say I really enjoy Jawan Morgan didn't know much about him I've been talking to some people in Utah about just trying to get the scoop on him. He's only played, he's played less than 200 minutes or maybe right around 200 minutes now total in the NBA. 
and so he's not like a high, you know, he hasn't been a guy that's been incorporated into their system a whole ton. But apparently Utah really liked this guy in training camp and signed him to a full contract because they were just so like convinced he was a player. And watching the tape, he's really stood out to me. Um, low usage guy, absolutely a hard hat and lunch pail guy. And a knows the, the number one thing, you plug a guy that hasn't played a lot of minutes into a playoff starting lineup, the number one thing they have to do is execute the game plan defensively. Offensively, shots are going to fall, going to do this or that, make hustle plays, whatever. Like That's stuff you can almost not control. But can you trust a guy to do his job on the defensive end? And through two games, I think Juwan Morgan has been fantastic just mucking things up and giving them these different wrinkles. Um, he's just completely unafraid of Paul Millsap. So early in the game, Morgan's on Jokic, which I think is interesting because he's a big bodied guy. He's mostly guarding Paul Millsap or Jeremy Grant, whoever the power forward is, but they're starting him off both the first quarter and the third quarter on Jokic. And it really reminds you of the Derek favors matchup with Jokic last year, where you put a big bodied guy that's going to make Jokic have to slow down and play that bang it in the post style of, uh, of offense. And then Rudy Gobert just looming over the shoulder. And let me tell you, the Utah Jazz are completely unafraid of Torrey Craig and Paul Millsap. I'd say a little bit more of Torrey Craig shooting almost than Paul Millsap. They've conceded. I have one clip that's going to go up on the list, my video companion piece for DNVR members. If you're a DNVR member, it's just $4.99 a month, and you get access to all of our premium content, including these video clips. They, there's some clips on there where don't even run him off the line. Just kick out to him. Okay, we'll take it. Let's see what you can do. And so far, Paul Millsap hasn't been able to sort of punish them for that. But the few plays, they're mostly having Gobert guard Jokic, but the few plays they put him there, it just completely takes away Jokic's post game or really role game or any of that because Gobert is basically just playing as a second defender on him. Gobert difficult enough to score on as one player, but uh, you know, head to head. But when you basically allow a constant double team on Jokic, it really compounds things. Um, communication for the Nuggets. So that so that's one thing that's going on in the series in small doses. Defensively for Denver, communication on switches is still a problem. And this is where I think defense inside the bubble has been down overall. I think all teams are struggling with defense. But Denver starting from such a lower baseline, there's certain things you can do that are just basics. We're going to talk about how Donovan Mitchell has really torched the Nuggets in the pick and roll. But Denver shoots themselves in the foot because if you just allowed Mitchell in that pick and roll to go, and you said, okay, they're going to score on that no matter what we do. Let's take away all the other stuff. Well, Denver's giving up the pick and roll at a crazy clip, but they're also just giving up basic guard-to-guard -guard switches. And there were so many examples of this where, um, you know, Torrey Craig and Michael Porter Jr., a little dribble handoff guard-to-guard. -guard. Usually you would switch that, or if it's, like, up high enough, maybe you just fight underneath or whatever. Screw that up. Either both leave the ball handler or both commit to the ball handler, and it becomes an easy sort of swing pass for a wide-open three. And Denver had... 12, 12, 15, 18 points they gave up off of just simple things like that where you go, that's not even involving Jokic in the pick and roll. That's just involving two guards. Um, Jazz, and so here's what I talk about. The Jazz had such a great game plan. I mean, you have to tip your hat to Quinn Snyder. The playoffs are so much about what teams can't do. And I've talked for years about how I think Jokic is a better defender than he gets credit for. The problem is he can't guard the pick and roll. He can't guard in space. I liken what this Jazz team has sort of evolved into in the bubble and over the first two games of this playoffs really reminds me a lot of the Capella era 
Rockets. And I know Nuggets fans all just kind of shuddered when they heard that because Denver did not beat the Capella era Rockets when they were at full strength over a course of like two or three years. Donovan Mitchell is playing the role of oh, it's it's kind of funny because he's a little bit of Chris Paul, he's a little bit of James Harden, and he's a little bit of of Russell Westbrook. He's got Russell Westbrook's speed. He's got James Harden's ability to sort of score off of complex one-on-one moves. Like he gets some of these isolations on switches. He's just murdering Denver right now. And then he's got some Chris Paul in his game and just that he's running around the screens and just kind of reading the court and which decision is he supposed to make? You you're guarding me this way, I'll go that way. He's doing those at such a high level. I mean, absolutely the MVP without question. So much so that I think if any other player, Murray, Jokic, anybody else had 50 points in Game 3, Mitchell would still be the MVP of of this series. That's how dominant he has been through two games. And then, of course, you've got Rudy Gobert, which is like a super capella, a better defender, and a better roller to the rim. And it's just taking advantage of Jokic's number one biggest weakness. And not just Jokic, but the Denver Nuggets as a whole, their biggest weakness. And that's why these games, in my opinion, have looked so ugly. And why I personally watch in these games, especially the second one, um, think that Denver is just going to have a hard time stopping the Jazz no matter what they do. They can shore up a lot of things. They can tighten up. But I just think that they are being picked at their biggest sort of flaw and their biggest weakness in a way that's certainly confusing. So it's that I'm talking about this high pick and roll. They've run a couple different, you know, variations of a pick and roll. But the one that I think they've gone to the most out of all of them has been this, you know, sort of horns twist play. My good friend Gibson Piper, who I love his analysis, Half Court Hoops, you might know him. He did a great video um, breaking this down, which I will link to on um, the list on, up, up on DNVR. I also have some clips of my own with like very specific things that are going on there that I know the Nuggets, sort of their tendencies, trends, weaknesses, what have you. But what, what they're doing is they're bringing up that first screen for, for Donovan Mitchell. They're bringing two bigs up top above the three-point line, and Mitchell kind of chooses which one he wants to go at first, and then you flip around and send the other screen the other way. So what happens is you often end up getting two switches, or you end up just spreading one switch, and then you spread the other guy out. And, and it's creating this really uncomfortable situation up at the top where Denver is having their least favorable defenders on the pick and roll, and they're being placed to make quick decisions in order. Go up to late on that pick and roll Donovan Mitchell attacks or, or Rudy Gobert will slip and they'll have you in a bind you go up a little bit um, you know early on it and they have another option another counter out of it so they're really doing a great job right now and, and just a fantastic game plan of finding Denver's biggest weakness and one of the things that they're having the Jazz do that I highlight on the list is they're having Rudy Gobert slip so because Donovan Mitchell and even Joe Ingles have been so good in the pick and roll they're often getting the ball up top, setting that screen up really, really high. And if Denver steps up to show on that screen, if they're not just playing that drop coverage where Jokic just stands in the paint, which, by the way, is also getting torched, but if they're bringing him up, they'll slip Rudy Gobert to the free throw line, and then Denver on the backside has to scramble. It begins an immediate chain reaction where they have to start scrambling to protect the paint, then the kickout threes are there, then they got to scramble that. And Utah has been so damn good at not just settling for the easy, one of which they're getting many, but if Denver starts to rotate, they're so good at being patient and, and working the ball around until Denver's backside rotations can no longer keep up and getting open shots. They're running a little hot. I mean, they're shooting well. I mean, at one point, I think going into the fourth quarter, they were like at 60% from the three-point line. They finished, I think, one of nine to finish only 44.5% from the three-point line. So they were they were really hot in this game, but I don't think you can just chalk this up to say Denver, will you know, things will regress. Quite frankly, 
Utah has made 22 three-pointers and 20 three-pointers in two of their last three matchups with Denver. They're going to have games like game one where they don't necessarily shoot the ball well. But I think they're going to get volume, and I think they're going to make a lot because they have a lot of great three-point shooters on the court. And so while you might not be able to count on 20 made threes every game, I do think that they're going to get the shots that they want, and it's concerning that they've been able to sort of get that shot basically or, or, or sort of break the Denver defense down so quickly with very, very little resistance. We talk about two things at DNVR. We talk about Denver sports and Breckenridge Brewery, the official beer of DNVR. Uh, Brett Brew is my favorite brewery in the Colorado area, the greater Denver area. You know, there's so many great beers we're always pushing you to. Mountain Beach, Strawberry Sky, the Vanilla Porter Juniors. But have you checked out the Avalanche Amber? It's a classic amber ale. They've been selling it for years. Um, if you know Brett, then you know about this beer. No better time to get it than right now while those abs are rolling, baby. So if you're not sure where to get your Avalanche Amber, well, of course you can come down to the DNVR bar on Colfax. We've got it on tap. Or just punch into the Breck Beer Locator. Google that. Just punch in what kind of beer you're looking for. It'll tell you where the nearest Breck Brew is to your location. So check out Breck Brew. No excuse. Check out that Breck Brew Beer Locator. Hey, let's talk about DraftKings Sportsbook, the number one rated sportsbook app in the country. Uh, sure, the regular season is fun and all, but only one thing can compare to the excitement of basketball's playoffs, and that's having skin in the game, baby, with DraftKings Sportsbook. Basketball has made its way through the regular season. Now it's time to crown a champion, and DraftKings Sportsbook is putting you in the center of the action. D-Line Co., you know him. Well, you know him as D-Line Co. I call him Eric Weedham. Uh, this guy cannot get enough. He's betting on what type of shots coming out of a timeout. He's betting on who's going to hit the first field goal. He's taking money lines. He's he's knee deep in this stuff and he's having fun and he's making money. So check out DraftKings Sportsbook um, and use that code DNVR when you sign up. For a limited time, all users can get a $10 free bet when placing a bet of $20 or more on all first round action. All first-round playoff action, I should say. So check out DraftKings Sportsbook. They're going all out. They're giving you that free bet. Uh, there's no better place to get in on the action. I talked about how Utah's going to get that. I mean, there's certain things Denver does that Utah can't stop. And it's, you know, there's a little bit of give and take on this. But... Utah is clearly getting into those actions and exploiting those actions so much easier and so much more frequently than Denver right now. But the the other margin here is that if Denver just concedes, okay, we got to make things tough in the pick and roll, but we know we can't stop them. Maybe you know one strategy that I per personally happen to to believe in is drop Jokic down low. He's not going to be able. He's going to get scored on a ton. I mean, it's going to be a layup line. But maybe try to limit it to Donovan Mitchell. He had 57 points in game one. Denver won. Limit the kickouts, limit some of the scrambling, and try to contest more. Maybe, you know, use Jokic to contest without fouling, but maybe you concede one guy rather than having the entire team in such flow and such rhythm. And um, and so that's one thing. But the other thing is you look at the margins. There was a play in the first quarter. I mean, Donovan – or. Uh, Torrey Craig has to be the stopper. I talked about him and how important he was to Denver's defensive scheme. Well, partly with Yo with the way Utah's been able to bring him off of Donovan Mitchell. I mean, they're just th this play they have. It's just so hard for Torrey Craig to fight through both screens. I, in fact, I'd say it's it's pretty much impossible. Utah and and this is today's NBA. You can kind of pick who defends you in the NBA these days. It's too hard with the screens and the amount of shooters you have. It's too hard to expect guys to fight over the top nonstop. So. 
Torrey Craig might not have as much value, but even when he was on Donovan Mitchell in this game, he was getting beat back door. There was one play in the first quarter where he just gets beat on a simple lazy back door cut because he took his foot off, like he kind of got on his heels for no reason and was a wide open layup. Torrey Craig does not have value in this series unless he can defend. He is by far the best perimeter defender, in my opinion, currently available. I think Gary Harris would have been second. Will Barton maybe the third best defender um, that the Nuggets have. So Denver's missing their two and three. Torrey Craig's not going to win win this game from you on the offensive end. He's got to be able to lock down, and he didn't. And I thought there was a lot of frustration from Jokic in this game from him. If you watch some of the timeouts, Jokic was jawing at him. Torrey Craig was running away from Jokic during timeouts because he was getting torched even when he was on him. And it, it, and it really kills you when on the offensive end you have a guy that the other team is not concerned about, and on the defensive end he has no impact. Um so, again, there, there were plays in this first quarter that I think were encouraging, and I have some of these up there where Denver scrambled on the backside so well. The reason I'm not convinced that Denver can get to that level, I mean, you would have to be a 2013 Miami Heat-level scrambling defense. I mean, that was one of the best teams I've ever seen do this, where they are just they were so athletic, so fast, um, you know, so positionless that they could run all over the court, and they were just trapping and rotating and switching off on the backside and doing all these things. They were so good at it. Denver's not that. And they had possessions in the first quarter where you watch it and you go, man, that was incredible defense. But it's one thing. And, and to be, have a good defense, there's two parts of it. One is you're really good at catching up once the defense creates an advantage. And one is you're really good at not allowing the defense to create an advantage. Denver right now in that pick and roll is pretty much playing from behind defensively right out of the gate. It's so easy for Utah right now to create that advantage. So the question becomes, can they make it harder on Utah? And when they do make it harder, do they have the cohesiveness, communication, and just raw ability to sort of scramble on the backside and make it? And that's a huge question. I'm really looking forward to finding out the answer um, and seeing what adjustments are made in in, in game two. O'Neal, the other part, I, so the defensive end, we're going to keep talking about it, but to me that's that's the part where you look at it and you go, ooh, that's kind of bleak. But the thing that Denver can get a lot better at is the offensive end. Right now, I have so much respect for Royce O'Neal after watching him in these games. I always knew he was a good defender. But the way he has really taken Jamal Murray out of the game, in both games, by the way, if you think back to game one, Jamal Murray went off when they took Royce O'Neal off of him, a decision I'm sure that they regret as a staff. But they have to feel great about the fact that when O'Neal is on Jamal Murray right now, he completely has bottled up the pick and roll. It's not just him, by the way. It's the way, and, and this is where Denver's adjustments are really going to come in. You get Morgan on that backside, kind of not really worried about Paul Millsap. He's still closing out on him, but it's like, you know what, if, you're gonna, if that's your option, we're just going to make him shoot contested jumpers. Rudy Gobert, who is fantastic in the pick and roll right now, both taking away the lane and recovering to Jokic. Jokic, not an above-the-rim player. He really likes to kind of short roll there. Gobert has found a way to really kind of play both, stop Murray from getting into the paint while also recovering back to Jokic once you know once that action happens. And then Royce O'Neal just using his size to not allow uh, Murray to come right off of a screen and go up. Murray really struggling in this one. He even got a foul trying to get a back cut uh, on O'Neal, which I think was kind of a dumb call, to be honest with you. Denver got a couple of really tough calls at some pivotal moments in this one. Um, but again, I don't think that has any much to do with how this went. I think it had much more to do with the fact that they couldn't defend Utah. But offensively, Murray has to figure out some things with Royce O'Neal, or Denver's going to have to adjust their attack. The Murray-Jokic pick and roll, while it's going to have its moments in certain lineups, with the way they're playing, especially with their starting lineup, uh, Royce O'Neal has cut that off. 
He's going under screens on Monte Morris, which I think is interesting. Monte has knocked down some shots. Now, Royce O'Neal, if they're both on the court, he's guarding Jamal Murray. But in the times that he has guarded Monte, he's kind of gone under and just kind of dared him to shoot. And Monte's done a good job of this. Monte, I think, um, I would actually try to play Monte and Murray together. I don't know that I would start them, although who knows. When you talk about starting undersized guys, you think about like, okay, you're going to give up something defensively. Denver can't be worse defensively than what they were in game two. They really can't. So then the question becomes, what is the value of having a Millsap and a Torrey Craig out there? If they're not, if your defense is already historically bad when they're on the court, then why not just go to your, the players that are going to give you the best chance to be offensive, uh, offensive minded. So one thing I would do is try to play them together as a little bit more, maybe even PJ Dozier a little bit, although that gets a little bit more murky. But the number one thing is, if they're on the court together, Monte and Jamal Murray, I might try running a lot more pick and roll with Monte Morris. Let Jamal Murray become more of an off-ball player. Royce O'Neal then becomes, you know, a couple years back, Kawhi was this great defender, and teams just would not go at him. They'd stick whoever he was guarding off in the corner. And then, you know, Kawhi Island, they would just put him out there. You might do a little bit of this with Murray. You want him involved. I just don't know that you want him involved in the first action because the first action isn't bearing any fruit at the moment. You go with Monte Morris. If they're going to go under, I think you encourage Monte Morris to take some of these shots. But more to the point, you're taking off one of their best perimeter uh, defenders from your number one point of attack, which I think would be really important, uh, really useful. Um. Denver wasted some possessions on offense too that were really painful. Um, both in games one and in games two, you just—it's so clear the contrast between Utah knowing exactly what they believe is their plan of attack offensively against Denver and almost never deviating that. Even guys like Jordan Clarkson, it was like he knew exactly where within the flow of the offense those shots were going to come. And then you get Denver where they'd have some plays with, say, Jeremy Grant where he would jack a three from three steps behind the line, um, you know, just kind of not in the flow. There was one play in particular didn't make the list, but Monte Morris had, I believe, Nyang on him. And you think, okay, perfect. Finally, we have a point guard with somebody that's not going to completely snuff out the pick and roll. Why don't you run pick and roll? Never touched the ball. Went to Jeremy Grant. He jacks up an early shot clock three, and it doesn't go. And um, you don't want to totally tell people to start thinking about when to shoot and when not to, but it was very clear that Utah felt like run in transition. If you have an A-plus shot, take it. If not, pull it out because we're going to put them in a pick and roll that they can't guard. Denver needs to find their moments like that on offense and be more disciplined to kind of get the shots that uh, that they're going to need in order to beat this team. Um out of a timeout in the first quarter, Michael Malone went to a Jokic post-up ATO with J with Dozier, Craig, Grant, and Monte spacing. I thought it was the weirdest call. So you got Torrey Craig, you got um, P.J. Dozier. Utah said, forget it. We're going to just go double Jokic in the post or triple Jokic in the post. They had three or four bodies on him as he tries to ISO post-up uh, the defensive player of the year in Rudy Gobert. I thought Jokic was actually really fantastic in this game offensively minus, you know, he missed some bunnies that he had. But especially when you go back and watch it and think, man, he is being put in a position to really not, um, you know, if you're going to surround him with these non-shooters out there and then call for ISO post-ups against the guy he already, you know, going head-to-head one-on-one is already sort of a tall task. I just didn't get it. And out of a timeout, that was just such a bizarre call um, that I really won't understand. And I think it kind of gives you a window into maybe why Denver was struggling. And, you know, this was an interesting matchup, too, because you're talking about Gobert, who I think Jokic has advantages on one-on-one. -on -one. 
maybe not enough advantages to mitigate how easily. If you think about it, Jokic, I think, can beat Gobert in one-on-one situations when he has the floor space properly. Okay, that's strength versus strength, though. Gobert's really good. There's a reason he's a defensive player of the year. You go to the other end, Donovan Mitchell attacking Jokic in the pick and roll, Jokic and Gobert in the pick and roll, that's strength versus weakness, right? So you have to expect Jokic to beat strength versus strength and then not get beat strength versus weakness. It's a really bad mismatch, at least as Denver was attacking him in this game. And Utah really electing on those plays to crowd the paint when Millsap is on the court, crowd the paint when Craig's on the court. But in the moments when Denver spaced out, they would allow him to go one-on-one and there would be nobody else in the paint. And on those plays, I thought Jokic did a very nice job. There was a lot of them. You know, Jokic in this game, it's not that – the number's not that bad. You know, he goes for, I think, 29 points on offensively, 28 points, 11 rebounds, 6 assists on 10 of 21 shooting. Three of those misses all come on one possession. So outside of that one possession, you know, he's above 50%. That's not bad. It's just a losing strategy. You've got to get the other things going. And if Utah is going to guard him one-on-one, then you need to put the spacing around him and hope that, one, he draws fouls, and, two, that he goes for 40-plus points. To me, this game is about Jokic needs to be an MVP quality player when going up against Gobert. And to do that, you need to surround him properly. And then he just has to play some of the best basketball of his career because they're going to give be giving up points on the other side. Um, Torrey Craig got cooked by um, Clarkson in the second quarter as well, or in the first quarter as well. So in that first quarter, you count on Torrey Craig to sort of tilt things in his favor, not just the pick and roll is one thing, but on these some of these other backdoor cuts, Jordan Clarkson isos, and he was just getting absolutely cooked. And then I thought the play, you know, one of the, the, the big runs of the first quarter was the Utah bench, which is not very good, and they take Gobert and Mitchell off of the court at the exact same time, and you think, okay, here's Denver's chance to really step on it. Well, Moutier scores a couple of buckets. Denver misses everything. They're not getting good flow, and they give up a bunch of points, and you think, my God, Denver's bench just got outplayed by a Utah's bench when that was has to be a strength. When, Denver, when Utah's best pick-and-roll option is off the court, Denver's bench has to step up, and they didn't in that moment. It was really concerning. We go to the second quarter, sloppy, really sloppy execution, trying to get Michael Porter Jr. and ISO, and some of this is his fault. He just, Michael Porter really has to understand how important the little details are. I mean, he's so good at like shooting over players. He has so much natural ability. But I really hope that you know this off season, and hopefully before that, hopefully in these when these film sessions, he sees plays like the first play out of, of the second quarter, how none of the timing on the action was correct, and as a result, he ends up shooting an incredibly difficult step back mid-range jumper and that's just he's going to be such a better player when he understands my work doesn't start when I catch the ball my work starts when the ball's on the other side how do I set up my guy is the screen obvious do do I have an ability to counter if they try to overplay it and he just doesn't really have too many of those at the moment um Next play, though, he had a great attack in transition, which was really encouraging. He catches the ball, Niang's at the top of him, and he catches with a nice quick crossover and goes. I'm telling you, Michael Porter has so much natural ability as a scorer that if and when these details for him start to come together, I just he's a 30-point-per-game scorer. It's just right now he's only the natural part of that with a little bit of, of some of the, the, the subtle nuances. He needs to fill up that reservoir of subtle nuances for him to really become an all-star. One of those things, and he does this sometimes, but I think it's something that uh, when he talks about looking to be more aggressive, a lot of times he'll catch and hold and survey because he's most comfortable in that, especially as he's so many things are going on, he's trying to think. But one thing he does well 
especially when he's not thinking the game. And it's something that I think he needs to do in the series is catching the ball on the move, catching it on the attack and on the bounce, and, and just more things come um, from He's so athletic that if he can catch on the move and force the defense to close out hard, I, I just think it's going to open up a lot of things for him. And then lastly, he needs to attack stronger. He got bailed out on one play where he had drove to the basket. Um, and I, I mean, bailed out, he was probably fouled, but it's, just, it's the playoffs. You don't always know what you're going to get, um, you know, the benefit of the whistle. But he needs to just go up stronger. There was another play shortly in this great – I mean, he had this great mix of him. Um, you know, I think he had 12 points in like a two-minute stretch. That's what kind of score he can be. But even in that, he had one miss because he went up and tried to like twirl it around and, and shoot this kind of like finesse avoiding the contact shot. And one thing that's interesting is I actually saw this in his high school mixtapes. You know, if you go online and you watch – because we haven't don't have college film to go off of, and he's done this at the NBA level. But if you go back and watch him in high school, he was so much more physically dominant than other players, but he'd still be like jumping away from the contact and trying some of these crazy ones. And I think it's one of those things that when you're six foot ten and the average player that's guarding you is five foot eleven, um, you know, you just get used to, oh, I don't need to go through this guy. I'll just throw it up soft, and if it comes back to me, I'll grab the rebound, I'll go up again. And he did a lot of that in high school. He's at the NBA level now. You go up soft like that, you're not getting it back. And I think that's a lesson he will learn, but it's one that he needs to learn really, really quickly. Um, they might be able to draw Gobert out of the paint more in the Jokic-Michael Porter handoff. I don't think pick and roll because I don't think he's a good enough ball handler, especially if um, Jingle and Joe Ingles, one of my favorites, if he's guarding him, I don't think that you're going to want to put the ball in his hands to dribble too often, but you can get him coming off of pin down or coming off of handoffs, especially, yeah, pin down like a strong uh, handoff, which is like a screen and then into a handoff. He can get those. And we're talking about trying to draw Rudy Gobert out of the paint right now. Gobert's just playing the troll in the paint, right? He's just like you, you have to pay the toll. Is that how it goes? You have to pay the toll. I can't, I can't remember what it is. But Gobert is standing there in the paint, and right now with Royce O'Neal guarding Murray the way that he has, Murray hasn't been able to turn the corner and get in there. Michael Porter's so tall, nobody can guard him, especially on the Utah's team. So having him involved more as the handoff option, either curl to the free throw line and elevate over Gobert, or have these actions happen a little bit higher and then turn and, and shoot the three, I think that's going to put a lot of pressure on Gobert to step out of his comfort zone. Right now, Gobert, Gobert gets to stay in his comfort zone right now because Denver can't punish him with the Murray Jokic two-man game. Um, I'd also, one other thing I would do for Denver, and I kind of suspect they will, I wouldn't be surprised if, first of all, Millsap goes to the bench and Jeremy Grant starts. There's a risk there. Again, defensively, Millsap traditionally has been better, but it's just if you're giving up 160 offensive rating in the first half and from the second quarter to the third quarter, who knows what that offensive rating was? Probably 200. I mean, they scored almost every time. If you're already getting cooked there. You might as well go to the op the options that are going to give you more dynamic, more, more different different sort of looks and reads. And using Jokic as a floor spacer so that Gobert has to guard him or, or feels at least worried about not staying attached to him. And then using Jeremy Grant as the screen and roller and pick and roll. So say, for example, a Monte Jeremy Grant screen and roll. Well, Jeremy Grant's going to roll to the rim and Gobert's not in the paint. So that means he has to elevate over Morgan or Ingles or whoever else they have back there that he's going to have both a size and an athleticism advantage on, I think that's a win. I think it would 
force Utah to sort of second guess, do we want Gobert just standing out there guarding Jokic or are we going to bring him in? And if you do bring him in, the backside action, kick out to Jokic, immediately hand off to either shoot the three if you're open or go right into a handoff with Michael Porter as your secondary action, that's great because Gobert sucked into the paint. He has to close out hard. You're going to get switches there. So there's things Denver can do to make their offense different. But unfortunately, because Michael Porter didn't play this year very much, I don't know that Denver's going to be able to adjust those types of things on the fly. Had they an extra couple months to kind of work him into the rotation, I do think you're going to see more types of offense like that. Nonetheless, I would still run Jeremy Grant as the screener in some of this pick and roll because he's just going to have the size advantage, especially on Monte Morris. We talk about Mike Conley coming back. He's really small. I don't think they're going to want to switch Mike Conley onto Jeremy Grant, so they're going to be fighting to work over that. You might have that lob threat with uh, Monte running at, at Monte and Grant attacking downhill after a pick and roll. Um, Gobert really got under Jokic's skin in this, in that second quarter. And I think, you know, he gets under my skin too. I mean, he's kind of a, I, I really strongly don't like Gobert's style of, of play. He's incredibly effective. I, there, it's personal with me because I want the NBA to be full of talented players. And it's annoying to me when it, it, it's frustrating when the league is moving in a direction. You look at the league right now. Houston Rockets having success. Their center's P.J. Tucker. The Boston Celtics murdering Joel Embiid right now with Tice. Um, you've got all these teams right now that Carl Anthony Towns not even in the playoffs. The the Lakers right now struggling with Anthony Davis and their bigs, their skilled bigs. It's frustrating when the skill bigs, the guys that can do a little bit of everything that, in my opinion, are entertaining to watch, might not actually have that much more value than guys who are tall, jump or just versatile. I, I worry that the center position in the NBA is becoming like a lineman in in football. They're not really meant to be skilled players. They're just there to kind of do a role and not really be noticed. They're only noticed when they screw up, and I worry about that. That doesn't mean that I don't think it's effective. Rudy Gobert is, is incredible. He was the best center on the court in this game, the most impactful center on uh, in this game, and I think by a fairly wide margin. I just don't like that the league is sort of evolving into this way where it seems like the skilled centers are almost not Near, they're, they're losing value as the years go on with as much talent as in the league from the guard spots and, and how much shooting there is on the court at all times. You really might just need either a Gobert or a Tucker or a Tice, and, and that's really the like mold, and, and I really hope that doesn't become the case um, going forward. But Jokic, he was getting under Jokic's skin, you know, some flops, a little bit of like, you know, he was he really talking some trash, and he earned it. I mean, he was winning that debate or that battle. And I thought that it actually – frustrated Jokic in a way that was very counterproductive. He has not gotten a tech. He almost got one in this game. But I thought more than the tech, you look at some of the misses Jokic had, I think Jokic was pressing a little bit in a way that wasn't productive. He was like, okay, I got to get this dude because you know I just don't like him or whatever. And, and I thought it actually took away from some of the things. Of course, Jokic had that transition foul, which again, Gobert flopped on, but it also was a foul. It's a foul that I think in a playoff series gets called one out of 100 times. But nonetheless, Jokic only did it because he was so frustrated by Gobert and Gobert suckered him into it. And it's just one of those things where um, as a non-partial observer, you sit back and you tip your cat and you say, man, he got him. He suckered him into doing something dumb. And there were just a lot of plays in this game like that. I think Jokic can and will be better against him. In fact, it's going to be one of the critical things in segment three we're going to talk about. But that was certainly noticeable in the second quarter that it, it, he really got under Jokic's skin. Um, the Nuggets tried to get Murray going out of the post. I mean, he had that in the, you know, in the seeding games. 
Royce O'Neal's too big. I mean, Royce O'Neal's a heck of a, of a defender, and Murray, as much as he's tall, he's not that tall. And when you put a big guy on him like Royce O'Neal, who's just a fantastic defender, it didn't work. Denver went away from it after, I think, two possessions and just said, okay, that's that's not the solution. They wanted to get Murray going. They just couldn't figure out a way to get it just yet in this in the second game. The game really came down to the last five minutes of the second quarter, and it really was all of Denver's weaknesses and worst possible outcomes coming together all at once. Number one, Utah caught absolute fire. They got a lot of the looks. They got the looks they wanted. So the pick and roll was working, but they did not miss. Even on wide open shots in an empty gym, you think guys are going to make, you know, maybe 50, 60% of them. You say it's a bad run. I think they missed one shot over the course of like a four minute run. They were just on fire with those shots. And then, Jokic, you know, he got a questionable over the back call. Jamal Murray missed the layup. I thought Jokic grabbed it. Gobert goes to the floor. He gets a tough call. But again, it's not like, oh, an egregious thing. It just was one of those ones that I thought was a 50-50, didn't go their way. Utah kept pressing, kept going. They were getting out in transition. Um, Denver's missing wide open threes when they their offense sort of got a flow. It was a combination of everything, and it went from this close, hard-fought game through the first you know 16 minutes or so, whatever it was, 17 to 18 minutes, to just absolutely snowballing and culminating with Gobert getting a dunk with zero point one seconds left on the clock and it was just a perfect storm all momentum in their favor as well as a huge lead and then we're almost done with the notes guys because the game ended at the start if you just look at the last five minutes of the second quarter and the first five minutes of the third quarter the game was pretty much over Utah started again with Morgan on Jokic so this is a theme um, Jokic missed another easy one again if you if, if that's going to happen and in this example Gobert actually wasn't able to um, help out he was kind of far away Jokic turns in for a little four footer and misses it um, if you just look at the shots that you think Jokic goes 80% of most of the time he had 28 points on 48% shooting he very easily could have had 35 36 on 60 70% shooting in this game but he missed some of those ones that I think you count on him making more often than not I don't know that it would have made a difference in this specific game I think Denver still probably loses pretty handily but you add a couple of those little plays during those momentum shifting moments and who knows at least you give yourself an opportunity um Utah is basically daring him to, to beat them one-on-one. -on -one. And in yesterday, in game two, he just wasn't up for the challenge. And in game three, I think he'll see a better effort from him. But I also think Denver's going to try at least to put him in better position to, to make it easier on him to sort of punish him there. I know Denver's going to emphasize defense, but Denver went scoreless for three straight minutes and they kept giving up transition and easy buckets. It is so hard to beat a team. I just don't know that Denver can be great defensively. You want them to be merely passable. I honestly think that might be the best you can hope from the, for this Denver team, given that Utah has is, is figured out a way to really exploit their biggest weakness. But you got to hope that they can score, and you got to work and, and, and structure your team, in my opinion, so that they can score and force Utah to play against a set defense and, and, and do some of the things that make them uncomfortable. When Denver goes scoreless for a three-minute stretch, Utah, it, it, this is part of why they didn't miss. They went, Denver went on these scoring droughts. Utah's confidence is, and rhythm and flow is through the roof, and it just snowballed from there. Um, I thought Jokic was really aggressive in that third quarter. Um, he had a bunch of offensive rebounds. He had second-chance points. He actually had what I thought was a good quarter individually offensively, but it was the only thing going for Denver. And defensively, he and the rest of the Nuggets were getting absolutely um, torched on that end. So um, that was it from the notes, really. Uh, it, you know, it, it's it's mostly, I think, discouraging things. But 
the interesting thing, and, and Jamal Murray had the great line afterwards. He said, you know, they, they beat it. They got us. We got one. They got one. And now it's our turn to make an adjustment. They made the adjustment, and it was a great one. And you go from a game that was really close to a game that was a blowout because of that adjustment. Now, can Denver stop them? I think it's going to be less of an overwhelming adjustment as the one Utah made, but you these, this is a series. Every game takes on a life of its own, and this game took on the exact life that the Utah Jazz wanted it to, and now it's Denver's chance to respond. I'm going to talk about some of those adjustments that I expect and some of the things I think Denver can do coming up in segment three. Let's talk about WGT Golf, the number one rated uh, mobile golf game in the world. It is a ton of fun. We put on events every weekend at DNVR. So if you are not yet, you want to sign up for our country clubs, download this app, search country clubs for DNVR three, because we've already filled up two and the third one's filling up fast. All of these country clubs mirror each other. We put the same tournament, same events on. Um, you can look for those every Friday, sign up, compete with the DNVR family, compete with the DNVR staff, hop in the discord and talk some trash. We have a lot of fun. Uh, we're building a WGT community and we're really proud of it. So hop on that wave, download the best mobile golf game in the world and have some fun with the NVR. And I'm always excited to talk about Strava Craft Coffee. We've got that CBD infused cold brew on tap at the DNVR bar. Um, all their, their coffee is of course CBD infused and you can get it uh, you can get cold brew, you can get ground, you can get whole bean, take that home with you. If you use DNVR 20 at checkout, you can get 20% off your first order or you can sign up for their subscription service. If you use the code DNVR20, they're gonna give you 20% off every order that comes with that service. So you can choose if that coffee is sent to you every two, four, six, or eight weeks. Get the CBD infused coffee that just gives you the jolt you need, takes off the edge that caffeine gives us all, and it is my favorite way to start the morning. Check out Strava Craft Coffee. Final segment here of the DNVR Nuggets podcast. Strongly encourage you to become a DNVR member today. All kinds of great benefits, um, you know, from discounts at the bar to awesome deals on merch. You sign up, you get a free T-shirt with you, uh, you know, when you sign up. And then you get access to all of our premium content. Harrison Wind writing some bangers lately, getting you all of your, some great quotes and putting things in great context. He knows this team so well. Uh, Brennan Vogt's been sending off some grades. Our Avalanche coverage has been as as there's nobody in the market that does it like us and. We got that kind of cool stuff. And then, of course, you listen to this podcast. If you want to check out the Winner's Lounge, the Loser's Lounge, the post-game show, we have a lot of fun with that, and we're continuing to build off of that. We have that, of course, on YouTube, so head on over, look for DNVR, subscribe, and after the games, log on there. You'll see us set up usually about 10 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes after the game ends. We get set up, and we go from there. All right, so what can Denver do? Well, number one, Mike Conley is coming back, and this is an interesting development. Michael Malone, man – before the series began, somebody asked him, what does it mean that Mike Conley's there? And I think all of Nuggets Nation said, oh, sweet. Yeah, they're shorthanded. We're shorthanded now. They're shorthanded too. It's even. And Malone kind of laughed to himself. and He goes, it means more Donovan Mitchell, like hinting that that's not a good thing. I think in hindsight, that is 100% correct. I would say it's almost impossible for Mike Conley, as good as he is, and I have a ton of respect for him, he's a fantastic player, almost impossible for him to be as good as Donovan Mitchell was over these first two games because Donovan Mitchell was historically good. 30 points, 8 assists on 10 of 14 shooting in Game 2, 57 points in Game 1. 
I don't know that you can say Mike Conley will put up that type of production or even any type of production that warrants taking the ball out of Donovan Mitchell's hands. So the question then becomes, does the Mike Conley take away from Donovan Mitchell? Does he add to it because now he's on the backside or this or that? You know, Defensively, what does that do? That's a real question, and if I'm Quinn Snyder, as much as he loves Mike Conley, and he's a Mike Conley guy, I still think that I stick with the game plan and make Mike Conley's role a little bit reduced. Maybe it makes Utah more deadly in the bench units because you can stagger, not that you're going to bring him off the bench, but just that you can stagger things so that he's on the court with Joe Ingles against those second units, and that certainly makes the second unit better. But as a starting unit, I would, if I was Utah, I would not take the ball out of Den- uh, Donovan Mitchell's hands until Denver demonstrates that they can stop it, and I'm not sure that Denver can stop it. But the good news is there are some things Denver can do to just make things different and especially make things on the uh, happen on the offensive end. Number one, I think that it's probably time for Denver to take Millsap out of the starting lineup and insert Jeremy Grant. And this is not necessarily because I think Grant solves all problems. This is very matchup dependent. Right now, there's not a role for Paul Millsap. They're not guarding him. He's not docking down shots, and it's not like they're tailoring their offense to get Paul Millsap shots. I don't think Denver wants to do that. You're not going to do that with Jeremy Grant either. But there's not really a role for him offensively, and defensively he's having next to no impact. Denver should be down zero games to two. I know that last year Michael Malone made the switch. I believe it was game four that he made the switch. After going down one game to two against the San Antonio Spurs, makes the switch, pulls Barton out. It was clear after games one and two that Barton was just not himself and that he was sort of anchoring them down because he was not himself. And then when they went with that switch, then they rattle off a couple wins. I think Denver should be down zero games to two. Waiting until you're down one game to two, to me, would be a mistake because it's pretty clear that Jeremy Grant forces them to defend Jokic and defend the Murray-Jokic two-man game and defend Michael Porter Jr. and all those these things. It forces them to defend them different. Is Grant going to be better defensively? Probably not, although maybe. you know He does have the length and he can switch and you can do a couple things a little bit differently there. Um, but I don't think he's going to make them meaningfully differently or meaningfully different. And and so defensively, you got to hope that as a team you can get a little bit better. But offensively, I absolutely think Jeremy Grant can do some things and make them more dynamic. He also, as I mentioned earlier, can run some pick and roll, um, which I think would be very useful. Um, placing him as the roller and the screener in pick and roll. He's not the best screener, uh, and he's not. he just hates contact too, which can be really frustrating. But I think that he's a guy that is going to that, – that in the offensive lineup can provide just a different wrinkle that will at least keep them from using Morgan in the same way that he has been, which is just to muck things up. I also would consider a switch with Torrey Craig. I would personally start Torrey Craig, especially if you have um, – especially if you have Grant out there, I would still keep him on the court, but I would look for moments with P.J. Dozier, with Monte Morris, who's been fantastic so far. Put the pressure on them to get scored on. The game, you know, you talk about it, Utah's going to score a lot, but if Denver can get some runs, you know, a 10-point lead, maybe even a 15-point lead, Utah scored so fast, they were able to put up some of these runs. If you can do that as Denver... I don't know that if I'm Utah, I would probably make Denver beat me one time before I made a single adjustment. I would probably just kind of play them the exact same way. But, you know, maybe you get a run and you put a little bit of pressure on them. Those shots that they're taking, even when they're open, it's a little bit more pressure because you're thinking, oh, man, we don't want to fall down more than we already are. And I would try to do that. You've got to look at the NBA. Look at what is winning in this playoff so far. Teams are shooting the lights out of the ball. Uh, out of the ball. Offenses are absolutely dominant. I think Denver needs to concede a little bit of this and say, we're not going to stop them. We need to be better. We're not going to accept it, but we need to outgun them. Um, 
you know, I would look for some different actions with Michael Porter. I think that he might be more valuable in this series, especially in the first 40 minutes of the game, than Jamal Murray going forward. And I know that's crazy because we just saw this first end of the first um, game where Jamal Murray was like outdueled Donovan Mitchell. If you just look at the last 10 minutes of of the game, five minutes of regulation, five minutes of overtime, he outperformed him because he made more shots down the stretch and he was unguardable. But I think we now know, looking at the context of both games, that Jamal Murray isn't doing that consistently against Royce O'Neal. He did that against Joe Ingles in game one. And he did a great job. He hit some tough shots that he can make those shots against Royce O'Neal too. I just don't think you can count on that to be the initial action that breaks down the Utah defense and gets everything else going. You need something else. And I think that something else is the two-man game with Michael Porter Jr., especially if you get Craig and Grant out there. Who's going to be guarding those guys? You're gonna have you're gonna have some smaller guys, especially Mike Conley on the court. You're gonna have Mitchell. You're gonna have Conley. You're gonna have Royce O'Neal. Too short. These Ingles too short. These guys are too short short to guard Michael Porter off of that catch. I would really empower him and Jokic to get their handoff game going. I would try to tell Michael Porter to be aggressive, looking for his shot. Maybe not being not so much with his dribble, and certainly not a hold the ball kind of guy. But I would look to try to get him moving quick. Almost think of him like a Kyle Korver type, where he's coming off of pin downs, catching the ball, and trying to go up. Tell him you got a green light there you don't have it give it back to Jokic back cut you know get creative with that two-man game just don't try to too too much off of the dribble and I think you can have a lot of success with it I also think you can create a lot of uncomfortable switches you know right now when you put some of the the pieces out there they, they don't mind switching guards to guards here you do some of this action that involves Michael Porter a little bit more and they're going to say we don't want Conley on him let's do everything we can to not have Conley on him Jokic needs to knock down some threes in, in game three. Um, you know, he hit some in that first game. Rudy Gobert is basically conceding certain aspects of Jokic's game, thinking that he can, you know, shut him down entirely uh, uh, with, like, the efficient scoring, and he did that in game two. Game three, if Jokic can knock down some shots and Denver can find some wrinkles that don't involve Jokic in the pick and roll, that maybe involve some of this other stuff, draw Gobert out of the paint, that's going to open up a lot of the other things that they have going on, and I think that's going to be one of the keys. So there's some adjustments that Denver can make here. And then in the second unit, you know, you got guys like Niang who've been shooting the ball, you know, you got some of these other some of these other dudes. Millsap might fit in a little bit more there. I think PJ Dozier has a role. His defense has been really really good um, against Jordan Clarkson and some of these ISO possessions. I think you have guys in that second unit that can kind of hold the gate um, if you make those kind of adjustments to your starting lineup. Torrey Craig needs to defend Donovan Mitchell a lot better. He needs to accept that challenge a lot better. But when he's not in there, I would throw some more offense on, on the court as much as you can. Denver's so short-handed without Barton and Harris. But I would throw out Monte with the starting lineup and see how they do. I think Denver's going to do those things, and I think it's going to be interesting. I would not be surprised if Jokic had a monster game in Game 3, given if you put some more of this offensive talent out there and if Denver's able to sort of meet the challenge. I also wouldn't be surprised if he didn't. Game 1, I thought Jokic won that battle. Game 2, I thought Gobert did. So I wouldn't be surprised. But I would say this. This series is really sort of bringing out some of Jokic's biggest weaknesses and it's forcing him to work so hard for at his some of his biggest strengths. They're taking away a lot of these passes. I thought he was going to have 10, 11, 12 assists a game. Utah, I think, thought the same thing and said, hey, let's take away that. Let's guard him one-on-one. -on -one. Let's do some of this other stuff and see how he does. I wouldn't be surprised in this game if Jokic meets that challenge a little bit better and maybe goes for 35-40. I think Denver needs it. 
his outside shot's going to fall. You need to punish Gobert for what you're doing, or else this series is going to get out of hand for Denver. So I'm excited for it. Looking forward to it. Um, this is a game of adjustments. Every game takes on a life of its own. Game one had its own personality. Game two had its own personality, ugly as it was. Game three very likely will have its own personality as well. And I'm curious to see what adjustments Malone and his staff make. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Don't forget, subscribe to DNVR. Check us out on YouTube following the game. Live post-game show live from the DNVR bar. We'll see everybody then. We'll close the show with one more Strava Craft Coffee read. If you follow DNVR underscore sports, which you should be doing already, then you saw we tweeted a video out today featuring yours truly, where I offered some testimonials on what Strava's done for me, on what Strava can do for you if you use code DNVR20 and sign up for their subscription service. So check out that video, check out Strava Craft Coffee, Google it, find their website, DNVR 20, 20% off. Um, these are This is my favorite coffee out there right now. The CBD infusion, it I need it, takes the edge off my anxiety, eases some of my joint pain, helps me out with the IBS, which gives me trouble. Uh, this is the best way to start the day. It's the best cup of coffee out there. Check out Strava Craft Coffee.